The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Action-led insights in Africa's non-bank financial institution sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. Good evening. Welcome to The Money Show. I am Bruce Whitfield. What a pleasure it is to be with you this evening. A tricky Tuesday number before we kick off for you tonight. 130 million. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a bit more detail than I normally do. 130 million dollars it is. That is what we're looking at this evening on our tricky Tuesday number. Have a go. Give us a shout on 11 880 Or you can send us a WhatsApp voice note, however you choose to communicate. We don't care as long as you get in touch. Now, on tonight's Money Show, in addition to Mpumi Zikalala from Kumba Iron Ore, who's standing by, uh, we have got a host of other guests for you. George Ganos is going to be looking at unemployment in just a moment, the crisis that keeps on getting bigger but is yet to truly erupt in something terrifying. We're going to be looking at markets with Wayne McCurry, trying to find out why Supergroup is losing its super status. Um, It's really struggling with elements of its business in South Africa, but not only in South Africa. There are other aspects of business that are coming a little bit under pressure, that in the UK and in Germany as well. Not always is the grass greener on the other side. Plus, this evening, we've got Warren Ingram on personal finance. Victor Homoswana joins us for the African Business Report. And the signals we're getting out of the decision by Heineken to write down its investment in... Um, in in uh, Heineken to write down its investments in South Africa by 10 billion rand. It was a big number for us, not so big for Heineken, but certainly significant. Plus, a quick preview of Budget 2024, which happens uh, in the next 18 hours or so. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Well, Kumba Iron Ore, following the footsteps of the Anglo-American stablemate, the platinum business, of course, of Anglo-American platinum. Uh, There's just too much going wrong, particularly in basic infrastructure like trains, which limits exports. Mpumi Zikalala, the chief executive at Kumba Iron Ore, is with us. You could have exported more iron ore had Transnet been fully functional. It must be very frustrating, Mpumi. Good evening. Good evening, Bruce. Uh, apologies if I missed the first part of uh, your question, but I've got the last part, no, just, which uh, was around... I, yeah, just, it, it must have been incredibly frustrating for you to cut production and then also to cut production for the future three years because you don't anticipate Transnet getting any better anytime soon. Yeah, Bruce, it has been a challenging period. And uh, we highlighted earlier today that we've seen a consistent decline in uh, our logistics performance if we look at the last five years, and clearly a lot of work is currently going in through the NLCC or the National Logistics Prices Committee to turn this around. And this involves collaboration between broader business, including ourselves at Kumba. It includes Transnet and it includes uh, government as well. So the logistics crisis is part of the three focal areas that this is looking at. And the other two include energy and crime and corruption. But has the been challenged? Definitely. And it hasn't been an easy decision. Uh, the Sishin Saldana line was once the darling of Transnet's railway lines. Is that where the problem is? 
Yes, it is. So whenever we look at logistics, we look at both the railway line and we also look at the port because ultimately we get to optimum delivery when the entire value chain works. And that's when the mines are producing at a capacity that can be handled by the entire logistics system. And yes, we come from periods where the performance of that line was certainly higher. But as I've said, in the last five years, we've seen a decline in the performance of the line. And the current focus is on getting that turnaround. Um, it's absolutely critical that we get that right, not just for Kumba, but also for our employees whose lives get impacted when we have to take the tough decisions, as well as our suppliers and our communities. And as you'd imagine, that essentially gets us to a space where we deliver less taxes and royalties towards our fiscus yeah. as well. No, exactly right. I mean, your shareholders get fewer dividends, the profits fall, you invest less in the economy. I mean, it, there's this knock-on effect, which is absolutely catastrophic on many, many levels. What is it, now that you've been part of this crisis team on, on infrastructure and on transport, what is it that is going wrong on what was a super high-functioning line not so long ago? Bruce, over time... Clearly, what hasn't happened is that there hasn't been sufficient maintenance that's been going towards both the line and the port. And that's catching up with us. And that's the biggest challenge. And clearly, the turnaround from a National Logistics Crisis Committee is then considering getting back to the capacity that that line should be running at. And in total, that line should be moving circa 60 million tons. And there is a lot of work, which includes various work streams. One, a work stream that's brought in additional technical capacity to assist the various teams within Transnet. And I have to say, what's been pleasing around this is that the current leadership of Transnet has actually welcomed that. And they've been open and transparent with us around us working together with them, not just the member, but also with the other OUSERS forum or the other users of the line, and also part of the broader National Logistics Committee. But the outlook for the next three years is still cloudy at best. Yeah, so Bruce, what we've considered is the fact that if one looks at the current state of the infrastructure, it will take some time to turn it around. Clearly, it requires certain amounts of capital, and it requires quite a lot of things to be done. So the reason why we've guided at a flat circa 35 to 37 million tons is through us recognizing that this will take some time. However, I've got to say that we've retained the capacity to ramp up production in the event of the turnaround coming through in a faster period of time. We will be able to match that going forward. And again, we will be part of the solution This is not a challenge that can just be sorted out by one party. It requires all hands on deck. And that's what excites us about the freight logistics roadmap, which was approved in December, because that will enable greater private sector participation as well. Now, your job cuts not as severe as your colleagues at Anglo-American Platinum, but still, you've got nearly 500 jobs that are slated to go. Also, you've got hundreds of suppliers who, like Anglo-American Platinum, it's a short director from London, looking at those supplier arrangements. The, the consequences of failure, which, you know, 
doesn't happen quickly. It happens slowly, slowly, and then suddenly you feel the effects as you've been experiencing recently. Is in the real world, you're now adding to the crisis of unemployment. And that is simply a question of remaining sustainable, I guess. Yes, it is, Bruce. So it hasn't been easy getting this to this point. And as I said, we have been dealing with the essence of looking at the turnaround for the last five years. From a Kumba perspective, we started with the more detailed review at the end of 2022. And we started with looking at other measures that we could put in place to prevent us getting to this point. And clearly, we looked at our mine plans. We looked at other structural cost reduction measures. Sadly, we've had to get to this point and we've got to do it because we can't just rely on external factors to ensure that our business remains competitive going forward. If you rely on external factors, we clearly all saw what happened back in 2015 and 16, where we saw prices declining quite significantly. We need to have a look at the space that is controllable to us to ensure that we'll continue driving value going forward. I've got to say that we will act responsibly as we go through this process. And that for us means engaging with our trade unions. We've built quite a lot with them. You just have to look at the work that's been done around the health and safety space to understand the power of collaboration with our unions. And we'll also work very closely with our various suppliers because, you know, I know we're talking about the negative right now, but as part of the results, we spoke about the essence of creating enduring value. And as part of that, we indicated that last year, we spent 23 billion rand with BEE suppliers. And within that, we spent 6 billion rand on local host communities. And that's a figure that's grown from the initial 0.5 billion rands to the current figure of 6 billion rands over the last five years. And that's why we hold our suppliers dearly as well. And we will engage with them in a responsible manner. Does that continue to grow or is it inevitable that it, it's peaked now because you are cutting back? I mean, there's no, there's no disagreement on that point. So Bruce, we'll clearly have to hold back on our expenditure. But as we look at this, we will certainly be balanced because we are a company that operates in the Northern Cape. And we look at that from a lens of saying that we've got to empower the people of the Northern Cape, either through the various social programs that we run, either from an education perspective, health perspective, or just broader social upliftment program perspective, which looks at enterprise development. And secondly, as I said, we've done a lot of work to grow our pipeline of host community suppliers, and we will continue working to ensure that our ecosystem remains balanced. This is about making sure that we'll be sustainable in the longer term, but I have to say we'll be responsible around it. We are very passionate about us making sure that our communities get to benefit from Kumba's existence in the Northern Cape. Mm. Mbumi, thank you. Mbumi Zikalala is the Chief Executive of Kumba Iron Ore. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Action-led insights in Africa's non-bank financial institution sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. Well, listening to that, George Genos, the head of research at ETM Analytics. Nearly 8 million people of working age can't get a job. That's one in three people who could be in work 
unable to find employment and we're so used to these big numbers and I think it's beginning to rub off on us and we, be, we don't take it as seriously as we should. It is, however, getting worse. The last quarter saw further job cuts and then this week we've seen Anglo-American Platinum and now, just with Mpumi Zikalala, another 500 jobs at Kumba Iron Ore and, of course, it does affect their supply chain as well. George Genos, what is so frustrating is that we see no sort of sign or signal or plan to improve it beyond political platitudes? Yeah, uh, Bruce, I think it's um, uh, just another indication of, of, a, of a sick economy that uh, unfortunately has been saddled with some poor economic choices historically that uh, quite clearly hasn't generated the kind of returns that we'd like to see. Um, the funding that government has deployed in previous years and we're approaching the budget now so you know the the funding deployed in previous budgets shall we say just has not hit the mark Uh, we have wasted a tremendous amount of and in that opportunity and of course it's led us to to this point where we are struggling to make any dent into this unemployment crisis that we face and you know, it's, it's particularly disturbing when you have a look at things like the youth unemployment. On the narrow definition, you're talking uh, in excess of 40%. On the broader definition, you're talking closer to 60% uh, youth unemployment. I mean, that must be massively demoralizing when you, 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 you come out of school, you go into university, you come out of university, and uh, you want to be contributing uh, constructively and productively to an economy, and you simply just can't find the opportunities there. So... We have to take a long, hard look at the way that we conduct uh, uh, policies in this country. And, um, and and dare I say, we need a, a significant shake-up. Uh, I don't know that we're going to get it tomorrow or, or in any run-up to this election, but uh, we desperately need major reforms. Why are we so accepting of catastrophically high unemployment rates? I don't know that any of us are accepting of it. I, I think we've just become desensitized to it. It's, we've been living with it for so long that it's it's a case of everybody just tries to make do. And um, I, I will say this, though, you know, that we don't just put a completely negative spin on it. I, I think things could have been a whole lot worse if it hadn't been for the dynamism of what we have in the private sector of this country. Uh, it's remarkable, actually, when you consider the headwinds that the private sector has felt from load shedding to now transnet, the ports, uh, and many other examples, that uh, we, we've still been able to keep unemployment, uh, albeit at these very high levels, uh, stable. Uh, it could have been that much worse if we if we didn't have that dynamism. So I think the private sector does its, its bit and does as much as it can, but it needs to be unleashed. Uh, and there are clear opportunities that government can target to unleash that dynamism. I just wish they would take it and, and stop trying to control everything and being as centrist as they are, because quite clearly uh, we do not possess the skills, we do not have meritocracy, and we uh, therefore cannot hope to run a government in the way that a private sector would run a company. And uh, therein lies the the um, catch that we have to, well, the hurdle rather that we have to surmount if we if we ever going to make a dent into this unemployment.
And you mentioned the budget tomorrow, and of course, uh, the president likes to wear as a badge of honour the number of people who are supported by social grants because that's you know, terrible economics, but good politics. More and more people dependent on a smaller and smaller pool of people who are being asked to pay more and more. And I guess that's the tone of tomorrow's budget speech. I mean, exactly. Uh, we, we, we've got a tax base that's under considerable pressure. Uh, the tax base wouldn't be uh, under as much pressure if we were employing more people and if companies were more profitable and if we had a more business-friendly uh, environment in which people would want to willingly invest their funds. Uh, funding is always attracted to, to areas where there's opportunity and South Africa is destroying those opportunities by constantly holding on to... Um, uh, running um, these BM of, of, of companies such as Eskom and, and Transnet and the likes instead of privatizing them, splitting them up, allowing a, a profit motive back into, into um, the running of these organizations so that we have some incentives uh, for, for people to take decisions that are in the better interests of, of the country. Uh, I'm tired of speaking about uh, these these um, policy tweaks that we have in bailing out SOEs, it's exactly the wrong thing to do. We have shown repeatedly that we can't run them. Uh, there is tremendous amount of opportunity that will be unleashed if we privatize them. Uh, I think it's long gone that we should be, I, I don't understand why we're still having these conversations, to be quite frank. But there's opportunity there. Um, South Africa can yeah. turn the corner. We can do a lot with what we've got. But government needs to get out of the way. George Glenos, who is the head of research at ETM Analytics, wants government out of the way. Fat afraid, George, on the front. The Money Show. The Markets. To Wayne McCurry we go. Wayne, of course, there with FNB Wealth Investments. I suppose a lesson that it's not all just doom and gloom and catastrophe in South Africa. Time certainly are. If you look at the super update, yes, it's South Africa Logistics. Uh, was significant, but my goodness me, the wheels came off literally on second-hand car business in the United Kingdom and also some tough times in Germany for them too. The boost, their local operations actually did quite well, but as you said, they had huge problems with uh, used cars in, in, the, in the UK and also the associated problems that you spoke about in Germany. And despite the weak grand, that actually pulled down the results, although I didn't think the results were bad. But certainly, I think the market was expecting a little bit more on that. Yeah, share price down 11%. It was quite a big smack on the day for Supergroup, which is, I mean, one of South Africa's best-run businesses. Let's be blunt about it. I mean, it's been a remarkable turnaround story from virtual bankruptcy all the way, you know, to, to one of the more remarkable turnarounds in South Africa's recent corporate history. Now, look, Peter certainly did a very good job there turning it around. And it was difficult because it came from... I mean, when you go back, it's quite a while now, and you go back and you think about uh, yeah. Larry and what, what he left behind, it was a huge task to turn that around. And well done to him. Yeah, yeah. about 15 years ago, the turnaround began, and it's been very, very solid. Yeah, and it also goes to show that diversification isn't always the, the answer to all yeah. of your problems. You go to other countries, you to simply take other people's problems on. And unfortunately, the, the hit rate of South African companies overseas with their branches overseas is not good.
No, it's not, unfortunately. Talk to me about Kumba Iron Ore and the frustration that they must be feeling with Transnet's failures. Um, Again, everybody putting a brave spin on it, saying we're collaborating, we're working together. But the the impact of years of underinvestment means years of increased investment required and private money coming in possibly into the rail network. But it takes years to, to get up to a level where you can actually function properly once again. Look, the private sector can work quite quickly if it has to. And, you know, as George was talking about, maybe we're at the point now where the government is just forced into a corner and cannot pursue their ideology anymore because things don't work and and the private sector is involved. We can look at what's happened in Eskom. I know we've still got load shedding, but the amount of private generation is going to come on over the next year or two will negate that. And, you know, the same thing must happen at Transnet. And we know it is happening, even though the government will never use the P word, but effectively, that's what's happening there. The, the ports and the rails are being privatized because the government hasn't got the capital nor the expertise to actually run these these uh, massive companies. And, of course, the country needs it. Otherwise, you've got no jobs. You've got no growth. But remember, with Amplats and with Kumba, we are at the bottom of a commodity cycle. So what's happening now is actually not unusual at all. We just hope that, as in previous cycles, over the next two, three, four years, we do get an upcycle again. Certainly, and so somebody wants an upcycle. I've just—I haven't looked at the Sashel share price for a week or two, and I look at it today, and it's below 150 rand. Yes. I mean, look, it's not as bad as it was during the Lake Charles catastrophe, but my <coughs> word, yes. the markets are very grumpy with with Sassel. Very grumpy. Yeah, but look, I mean, I suppose you know, if you look at bad capital allocation, I mean, they've wasted an incredible amount of money, but they are still a heavily cyclical company, and hopefully, there is some upside. Over the next two or three years, I mean, the share price has been destroyed. I actually think it's very cheap at these levels, but I mean, it might get significantly cheaper before it turns. Wayne McCurry with FMB Private Wealth and Investments. Thank you for coming in. Wayne McCurry. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. And the joy of radio is you have absolutely no idea what color my mankini is. That's an advantage. For everyone, I guess. The Money Show is brought to you by APSA CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insight Series. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. And yeah, there's lots still to, uh, to come this evening. We are going to speak to Peter Attard Montalto. He, of course, is the Managing Director of Crutham used to be called IntelliDex, uh, with a, a preview of Budget 2024. And then we'll talk to the founder at Ami Insurance Brokers this evening. Um, and we'll get a, a clear picture from Crystal this tonight about the risks that you face on the terms and conditions in your insurance policy, the, the detail of your insurance policy, and why it's important and how what's happening to an American singer actually is playing out and could be very, very relevant to you. On your next Money Show, it is Budget 2024. We're going to speak to leading experts in business, tax and economics, looking at implications for you in this election year, the huge challenges in the South African economy, the crisis of confidence in our fiscal position and what the finance minister does about it. We'll also have Business Unusual with Arthur Goldstuck, the chief executive and founder at Worldwide Works, looking at the newest AI tools in business, plus all of the other money stories of the day, but particularly the budget. Next time on The Money Show.
Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. As we get hold of Peter Atod Montalto, of course, we will pick up on the big story. When that is PwC's report today saying that they are seeing the likelihood of a personal tax increase or an increase in the VAT rate. Now, in previous years, I've seen these sorts of forecasts and I've gone, oh, please, pull the other one. What nonsense is spoken? This year, however, for the first time in a very long time, I am taking more seriously the forecasts of capital raising you and me from people who pay our taxes to keep profligacy of government and the barking mad ideas and the corruption and everything else that comes with it. It's part of the deal, I suppose. Uh, he did say in the medium-term budget policy statement, did Inokorongwana, that he would need to consider raising taxes. There are shortfalls in tax collections, and I don't think tax collection in the last quarter of last year would have got any better considering the level of load shedding and just general economic difficulty. But yeah, PwC says personal income taxes have been performing better than expected, and that much is true. We know that from the medium-term budget policy statement. We did see increases in jobs up until the third quarter before the disastrous fourth quarter, of course, and VAT collections have been okay. I think VAT collections have been not so bad. However, um, there are big pressures on the expenditure side of the budget, and despite promises by the finance minister that uh, government expenditure would be cut last year and there'd be 0% increases for civil servants, it didn't take long before that entire sort of budget synopsis was blown out of the water completely and uh, we had to see an entire review done as civil servants got above inflation increases last year Um, and there wasn't too much of a fight from government frankly on that particular one but we'll pick up with Peter Atobantato on forecasts and the budget in a couple of minutes time. But here are 10 words I never thought I would see in this sequence lessons from kid rock's erosion challenge for south african homeowners i didn't know who kid rock was i've heard of kid rock and when you think of kid rock you think it's a young person who's in music and i was right but apparently yes kid rock who's got this dreadful problem at his home and there was a recent article in forbes magazine showing his home being threatened by erosion and it is highlighting a big issue facing homeowners not only in florida which is um, in the United States, of course, but it is peppered with lessons for all of us. Christelle Coleman is our go-to person on issues of short-term insurance. Christelle is the chief executive at AMI Underwriting Managers. What exactly is uh, Kidrock facing from an insurance problem perspective, Christelle? Good evening, Bruce. Thanks for having me on your show. I love being here, so thank you. Um, well, you know, the, the issue really is corrosion and erosion of, you know, of grounds and, 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 and the, the beach away from the property. And the issue is that it's, an, it's, a, it's a risk that happens or an incident that happens over a period of time. So insurance policies, and I know you don't always like us insurance people, but insurance policies cover you for sudden and unforeseen events. Um, so, you know, when I saw this article um, in the Forbes magazine, it made me think about how many of these similar situations we face in South Africa up on the KZN coast, um, even down here in Cape Town on the Breda River, where people are exposed to continuous you know, problems that happen over a period of time and they think they can claim for it and actually your insurance policy will not cover you for um, a gradual operating cause, to, to use the term. 
It, it's so interesting, isn't it? So you can live on the banks of a beautiful river and kind of notice that the shoreline is getting closer and closer to your front <laughs> step and relax into it, say, well, that becomes the insurance company's problem one day. I don't need to put up any barriers. Whereas if there's a sudden flash flood which causes an immediate degradation of the shoreline that then causes damage that's a different issue altogether as we saw play out in KZ and perhaps in one of the the, the more dramatic floods of recent years. Absolutely so so like I said um, your insurance policy covers you for sudden and unforeseen events so whether it's weather related mm. or crime related something that happens over a period of time is where the problem is. Now um you know, the reason why I thought this is such an important topic to discuss is not just from an insurance perspective, but if you end up buying a property and you didn't do your homework properly and that house is exposed to the elements, whether it's built under the floodlines, because we see that our previous government allowed certain people to build under floodlines, or whether we see as a result of climate change, um, the, the coastline is actually eroding away at uh, where the properties are built and you just buy the house and then you have a problem, you could end up not being able to insure that property. And if you can't insure a property, you can't really sell it because your value, your resale value will be next to nothing. You won't be able to get a bond on that property. So it's really a serious situation. And I want to reference, um, you know, the again, the Breda River here in the Western Cape. There are holiday homes situated that river that can't get flooded at all anymore. So those homeowners are carrying that risk themselves and I'm sure it does have a knock-on effect on future resale values of those properties. So it's not just an insurance issue, it is really about making sure that you, when you buy an oceanfront or waterfront property, make sure it's not exposed. Um, ask the homeowner if they've had incidents, if insurance companies have declined claims in the past uh, because that would be a red flag right there. Um, and make sure that you don't buy a big hole in your pocket. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, can you get clarity from an insurer before you put a uh, put an offer in on a property? Is it possible to say, um, I'm looking at 44 River Drive in Rivers Town on the, right on the beach, and it looks fantastic, and I can't wait to you know, roll out of bed in the morning and go for a walk along the river. Could you tell me whether or not you'd insure it, and uh, would they be obliged to give you an assessment? Absolutely. I mean, if you're insured with me, we would be able to help you with that because we have access to data sets where we do exactly that. So we, when we underwrite and assess the risk, we pull um, information from our service providers, our data service providers, to see the exposure to the floodlines, to previous incidents, um, even fires. You know, if we look at Betty's Bay nowadays, it's a huge fire risk for us. So, you know, if we have an existing client and they want to ask us for that kind of risk information, we would gladly make it available before we have to say to him, no, Mr. Client, we can't insure you. Um, and nowadays with data, it's possible to get this information. Uh, you just have to ask for it. And it, it just, you know, if, if you go back to the original conversation around um, corrosion and erosion, so erosion obviously yes. is... Yeah, no, no, the, 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 the ground being sort of washed away and then eventually we see that in KZN as well with all the recent flood incidents. The homes become unstable on the grounds that they built. And, and then, you know, once that's happened, you're kind of on your own. There was a big issue with the KZN floods where there was so much ground lost in the floods and typically the insurance policy doesn't cover to replace the ground, the actual earth. Uh, so clients were out of pocket with that as well. So that's erosion. Corrosion is where you have a constant sort of attack by the water of the ocean and it starts eating away at your property and you can't actually claim for that. You just have to keep on replacing, uh, replacing those items because it's 
unexpectedly sort of exposed to the elements and seawater. So um, I know we pay a lot of money for uh, oceanfront properties and riverfront properties, but the word of warning is just be aware of this impact on insurance and your future value as we see climate change roll out and unfold and, you know, present us with new risks. Christelle Coleman, thank you, Chief Executive <laughs> you. at AMI Underwriting Managers. You say corrosion, I say erosion. Your insurance company says, not my problem. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Action-led insights in Africa's non-bank financial institution sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. It was the night before budget and all around was the sound of Treasury officials scraping the bottoms of barrels and staring into magicians' hats looking for hats to pull out. That's why the American poet uh, Clemens Clark Moore, who wrote Twas the Night Before Christmas, got paid the big bucks, because that stuff's quite hard poetry. The managing director of Crutham, Peter Adod Montalto, is with us. Um, yeah, that was hard work, but I mean, putting the budget together this year is even harder work, Peter. Um, lots of predictions of calamity and catastrophe. How are you reading the tea leaves ahead of the event itself? Good evening, Bruce. Well, I think. I'm a little more positive. I think people are overplaying this slightly. We issues of is Treasury getting enough revenue? Can they raise this next year? Uh, can they uh, cuts this year? About fifty six next year. Uh, and all those things are certainly not easy. They still have the political capital from the do that. Uh, a little bit of slippage coming through uh, at the margins. There's obviously a bigger longer-term question in particular uh, around the media debt. Uh, those are big questions. We're still not in an optimal place. Cabinet's still not taking the big decisions. Um, but those maybe are... Tomorrow will be a, an upside surprise for the market. Okay, give me a sense of it then, an upside surprise for the market. He did warn in the medium-term budget policy statement that there may be a need for tax cuts. And we know that government's only got two ways of raising money, and one is uh, through taxes, the other is to borrow more money. We already are quite heavily borrowed, and we're also massively overtaxed as a society. So uh, what are the prospects of those two things happening? Well, we can get $15 billion of tax hikes that were penciled in at the medium-term budget through some bracket creep. That's uh, personal income tax brackets going up by less than employment. A hike that is through sin taxes. The hike, this, this amount is not uh, impossible to raise. It, it, that's less of an issue. Uh, of course, there are much bigger long-term tax suspending issues around it. But, I mean, I think they successful at these 21 billion of intra-year cuts they penciled in at the MTPS. The problem is there's been slippage elsewhere. And so Treasury, as we've seen in the headlines, shows trying to pull back. How are we going to end it there? Unfortunately, your is just uh, too 
possible. But I, I think we got the key theme there from Peter that, yes, it is tough, but perhaps a, a little bit overdone by many of the forecasters. Now, I've always shared Peter's view um, in the uh, in the past that people overstate the downside of the budget. They, they tend to over-exaggerate it. But for the first time this year, I'm doubting myself and my confidence in the ability of the Treasury to... Um, put a, a sort of a sugar coating on the budget this year um, because last year they made big assumptions that didn't come true and so it comes down to a question of credibility and there's some very capable and very nice people who work within uh, the National Treasury who do their damnedest despite whatever you think of most government departments, National Treasury happens to be and remains an outlier of, of, of excellence and high performance. You can see that I'm sucking up because I don't want them to be raising taxes tomorrow. Well, whatever is written in the national budget speech is written in the national budget speech, and we're all going to have to live with whatever the finance minister says. He steps up to the podium at around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It's never before that. There's the usual, there used to be the beautiful amble down, uh, what's the road from the Mount Nelson down to Parliament called? Um, anyway, that, that beautiful walk, and, and they would they'd walk down, and there would be a treasury team that would be smiling, um, and they would be look, look happy. Tito Boweni described it, actually, on Twitter recently as the unhappiest time of his life, and he had the, the COVID budget, of course, to sort out, and I think he did a marvellous job back then. Again, he didn't achieve what he wanted to achieve because he wanted um, government departments to listen to him, because he's used to being listened to, and nobody was. So that was really, really tough. In Ogorongwana, um, is a different character, of course. You know, Gorongwana has spent much more time within ANC structures in terms of the finances of the ANC and the country and as advisor uh, on behalf of the ANC to Treasury. So he understands it well. And he's proving to be a, a very good finance minister. But it doesn't make the job any easier. So I'm glad that Peter Atomontalto thinks it's going to be less awful than we expect. That budget speech, 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Of course, analysis in full on the next Money Show as we look at the intricate and intimate details of Budget 2024 and every important aspect that affects you and affects me. 2024. I'm a little bit apprehensive, Frank. After eyewitness news, the big signal we got and we should be paying attention to, other than the big number of 10 billion rand write-down by Heineken after making the huge investment, not only in the brewery in Sedibeng to, to uh, create a brewing capacity in South Africa. Remember, it shelved brewery, a brewery building plan in KZN during COVID when the booze bans were put in place. And then it went and bought Distel. And I thought to myself, it's so strange. Based on something I learned at the World Economic Forum. Pick up on that with Evan Walker at 361 Asset Management and our signals feature in a moment. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration. Through the Insight Series, APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to the Tuesday evening edition, the night before budget edition. And I hope Peter Atalmantolto is correct. I hope that there is a rabbit and I hope that it's alive. And I do hope that uh, the finance minister is able to find the hat in which it's stored. He is a hat wearer himself. Uh, the late Jabu Mabuza was a, a big hat wearer, but it would be good. Um, it would be good to get uh, a very clear sense 
from him as to the state of the fiscus. Evan Walker is standing by. He is a, an asset uh, manager. He is a fund manager, an investor at 361 Asset Management. What signals is he seeing from the uh, write-down by Heineken of its business in South Africa? It said, we thought it was worth X, but actually it's worth 10 billion rand less. 10 billion rand. A lot to you and me. Not huge in the lives of Heineken. But what does it tell us about Heineken's view of the investment it's made in our country? Victor Homaswana with the Africa Business Report and then wrapping it all up this evening with Warren Ingram. He is a certified financial planner and it takes a lot to become a certified financial planner and he's one of those people. Uh, he also is a director at Galileo Capital and a very generous contributor every week uh, to The Money Show uh, and we talk personal finance from half past seven. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. I was surprised when Heineken went ahead with the acquisition of Distel based on a couple of things. Um, it had, of course, created the Sedibang Brewery um, near Ferenaging and had done, I think, fairly well out of the Sedibang Brewery. It had plans to build a second brewery in KZN. And then, of course, COVID happened. The nutty booze ban happened. And then Heineken discontinued those plans. And I thought it was going to be then just simply brewing some Heineken and some Vintuk based in, in Sedibeng. And then they came out with a pitch for Distel. It took them 18 months to get it through the painful regulatory process and they paid a fortune for the asset of Distel. But I'd been party to a conversation between the finance director of Heineken, which is a Dutch-based brewing company, second biggest brewer in the world now, um, after AB InBev. And Tito Moeni was in the room, Ebram Patel was in the room, somebody else, Naledi Pandor was in the room, and it was a government meeting with, with investors, and Patrice Motsepe had dragged me into this meeting rather than give me an interview, because he doesn't like to give interviews. Um, and I sat quietly at the back uh, with rapt attention, and the finance director of Heineken was saying, please give me some assurance on load shedding. Your load shedding is really hurting us, she said. And what about water quality? We're worried about water quality. And I thought to myself, this is no way that these guys will ever throw more money at South Africa. And then they did. Heineken did it anyway. It was all part of a long-term Africa growth strategy. It's all well and good, but in the short term, what they've done is write down the value of their investment by a massive 10 billion rand. Basically, what they're saying is this business is worth 16% less than we thought it was. Evan Walker at 361 Asset Management. And again, not a huge deal in the life of Heineken, which is a multi-billion euro business, but quite a big deal in the terms of South Africa and the signals that it sends in terms of foreign direct investment, Evan. Yeah, 100%, Bruce. I think as you rightly said at the onset, um, you know, these companies take a long-term view and you know, the analysis normally takes them a couple of years up front. And in, in, in that analysis, they obviously just put in some very simple assumptions, and that's just assumptions around volume and around pricing. And obviously, as we know, this market is exceptionally tough at the moment, and the consumers are feeling the pinch. So you've got to pull back some of those assumptions, and some of those assumptions uh, the accountants don't let you run with, and you have to impair the asset which you rightly paid a lot of money for. So yes, um, you know, businesses make mistakes. They probably really do buy at the wrong period in, in cycles. Um, and obviously we came out of COVID you know, sort of scheming on the upward. I mean, the projections after COVID were very strong uh, as people rushed back to stores to stock up again. So it looked incredibly good for a short period. 
uh, but it's fallen off a little bit of a cliff of late as you know as consumers have sort of normalised their consumption patterns. This is not just South Africa, funny enough. I mean, this is a lot of territories that we Heineken carefully. Uh, we did have a big position in the portfolios of Heineken a long time back. Uh, so it's a stock that we watch carefully. We know it. We know what they do in Vietnam. We know what they do around the world. It's a very, very good business with a very good brand and very good long-term pricing dynamics, I think. But it does require a more affluent customer base. Um, and hopefully we'll eventually get there. But for now, I think the South African market is going to be under a little bit of stress. And, and it, it is sending a signal to other investors to say, be careful what you pay for businesses in South Africa because the, the environment is not always as supportive as you might hope it will be when you go into the, the deal that, that eventually you do ink after all of, uh, all of that research. 100%, Bruce. I mean, as we know, um, these businesses are notoriously bad at timing you know, entry and exit strategies as, as, as our companies are moving offshore. And you've written about that extensively and talked about it. Um, I think in this case, you know, in Heineken's case, they've been hit with a little bit of a double whammy in terms of obviously load shedding, which was there and it's got worse. But then I think, again, the currencies and these African currencies, I mean, we saw, that, we saw them right off their Nigerian asset, virtually to zero. Uh, and again, that currency has taken a huge hit in what is probably at the extremes of, of dollar, of dollar um, interest rate cycles. And obviously, a lot of these African countries borrow in dollars. Now, we're not as affected, South Africa, in terms of dollar borrowings. So our currency hasn't blown by 50, 60, 70%, as we've seen a lot of these African countries. But still, we've had you know, quoted 11% over the last sort of 14 months on a depreciation against the dollar, not so bad against the euro. Um, but certainly, you know, um, that does hurt their assumptions. Where it also hurts Brutes is obviously on the input pricing assumptions because obviously we know barley, wheat, and a lot of ingredients go into the manufacture of of, uh, of beer. And there again, the translation effect of those of those dollar input prices back into the commodity hurts their gross margins, which again hurts their profitability. And it would also dissuade them. I mean, if they were ever intending in building that second brewery in KZN, um, I can't imagine it's top of their agenda right now. Not only did they get stung by the vagaries of our booze ban, uh, but now suddenly the business that they bought in Distel and everything else that they own in South Africa isn't as worth as much as they once thought. And they would look at the setup costs, the startup costs of a brand new brewery, perhaps with different eyes now. Yeah, again, I think it's, I think that the Stell deal was premised not just on South Africa, obviously, as you said, but rightly the distribution arm of the Stell, which has done a very good job through Africa. And I think they were looking yep. to piggyback off some of that. And I think there are going to be benefits for Heineken in the long term for that. But I certainly think in the shorter term, you know, you're going to see guys pull back. I think there's load shedding, the, the second round effects of load shedding. Uh, obviously, we're seeing a platinum sector in demand. You know, we, I don't think we've really seen the brunt of this economic hit from load shedding on just on just general consumption. Um, obviously, it's been propped up you know, with a lot of grants in the market. Uh, 33, what is it, 34 million people get a grant every month now, so that certainly does help. Uh, but again, you know, it's, it's been a big drag on consumption and a big drag on profitability. And I think a lot of businesses, you know, have had to look at their cost base extensively. And unfortunately, when your costs go up, salaries come down because people need to make a, an economic profit for shareholders in the first place they cut again, is, uh, is, on their, is on their wage bill. So I think, yeah, Heineken will take a longer-term view of it. 
Uh, what has surprised me are the likes of Ford, which has come in and made additional investments in South Africa. Uh, you know, that was a big investment, which did surprise me coming into the South African market. So, you know, it's not all fall down. It's not con- complete doom and gloom. Uh, but again, this load shedding is a big issue for corporates requiring, you know, 24-7 power. Evan Walker, thank you for your wise analysis. The, he is with uh, 361 Asset Management. And yes, it's always good to remember that, yes, while there may have been a write-down of the value of the investment, there are other companies that, despite the real rigours and difficulties, I mean, Panyaza got it all wrong yesterday at the State of the Province Address, Sydney. I think he was building a new railway line to East London to help, um, to, to help Ford. Uh, Ford manufactures... Um, just north of Pretoria, Roslyn. Um, and it does have components which come into the Ngoha port uh, just outside Kawaha, and they get um, engine blocks, for example, which are rough cut in the UK. They put them onto big train tra- uh, onto trucks in uh, at the port at Ngoha, and then rail them up to uh, Pretoria, where or to Roslyn, um, and then assemble the Ford Ranger trucks, and then put them back on the trains and send them all the way back down to the coast for export. And that, that as far as I can tell, is working okay, um, despite the vagaries of Transnet. But yo. We make it difficult. We make it so flippin' difficult for foreign investors. We keep telling them they must come. We keep telling them they must come and create jobs. We keep telling them that they must come and bring their money. And then we don't provide the networks they need in order to really entice them to stay. Yes, they've got big incentives, particularly in the motor industry, um, to manufacture here. Otherwise, they wouldn't. We are uh, uh, not exactly the most convenient part of the world when it comes to to managing imports and exports. Uh, We're we're a long way away from many of the world's more lucrative markets from a manufacturing perspective. So, yes, the incentives have got to be good in order to do it. They're tough. It is really, really tough to do business in quite a, a dysfunctional South African environment. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Action-led insights in Africa's non-bank financial institution sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. We'll get to Victor Homoswana in just a minute. Uh, just to tell you, Warren Ingram this evening is focusing on uh, investment schemes and scams. The sort of stuff, and I haven't shared Tricky Tuesday with you either. <gasps> Producers, you're very naughty for not reminding me. Um, uh, the, the, the rise of investment scams, that's what we're talking about this evening. Earlier on at the start of the show, I drew your attention to a number, our Tricky Tuesday number. And I said to you, there is a number which uh, caught my attention today and that number was 130 million dollars now that 130 million dollars is the amount of money joe biden has raised to fight for re-election to the u.s presidency and it follows a a massive january he raised 42 million dollars in january alone that's a huge amount of money that 130 million dollars he's got actually gives him a record-breaking election war chest. No American president in history or candidate in history has had this much money. And that's despite the fact that his polling is weak. Maybe it's because his polling is weak that people go, well, this guy needs as much help as he can get because the alternative is nasty. He's not at his peak um, physically. He's not at his peak cognitively. Kamala Harris, who would become president if Joe Biden was no longer able to do the job, hasn't been spectacular as the deputy so far. Uh, 
And it gives you a sense of just how nervous the Democrats are that Donald Trump could pull off a win. I was chatting to somebody earlier today, though, saying, yeah, yeah, again, don't put too much sway in it. And I think that may have been wishful thinking. But Trump hasn't released his January fundraising figures yet. And if he did, would you believe him? No, he hasn't released his January fundraising figures yet. But um, there, there are lots of people who are backing his run for the White House. And they are suggesting that... At the end of last year, he had 66 million as opposed to Biden's 118 million. So that's a difference to $52 million. It's a huge amount of money. Uh, and Joe Biden you know, can't convince Americans to vote for him with that amount of cash. Then, you know, we're in for another Trump presidency, which is kind of terrifying. I know lots of you are Trump fans and you hated on me for disliking him the first time around. Trust me, I'm going to dislike him even more the second time around. Thank goodness there can't be a third. That's all I can say about that one. Victor Homoswana, standing by. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. When you talk to technologists and you talk to people in the cell phone industry, they say, oh, 5G, it's so good. And you say, why? And they say, oh, self-driving cars and other la-la things. But I think what we're seeing, Victor Homoswana, the author of a book called Africa Bounces Back, is that certainly when it comes to mining in Africa, 5G is proving to be quite useful. Good evening, Bruce. You know, when 5G was first punted, remember during COVID that it was going to be the end, it was going to be doomsday as we know it, and be careful, this is good. It's exactly proven. MTN, which has proven that Africa and other emerging markets can be good hunting ground with all the risks, have now taken 5G into mining. And think about it. You've covered business a long time. The injuries, the fatalities, sending people into dangerous places to work. All these things will be a lot easier if you can deploy technology ahead of human beings and make sure that you can see around bends that you don't need to always use people to go into dangerous and you can reduce the level of risk, you can reduce fatalities, but you can also get to improve, Bruce, the geophysicals, the the surveying and all that. That's where MTN is wanting to deploy this. And because it's present in countries, large economies like Nigeria, it's going to be able to be getting ahead. It will be between it and companies like Globacom out there and Vodafone and what, but it's already got the edge, at least on the African continent. And that's the beauty of technology. You can always put it to good use if you understand how. And just like MTN led in venturing into markets, although it got whipped in some of them, it is going to lead on this one. And because mining in Africa is still not a sunset industry, it is going to be a very good area to which they can, in which they can deploy 5G technology. Okay, good. We hope so. Um, we need all the help we can get. Talking about our BP and investing $1.5 billion in Egypt. Now, that's so interesting because Egypt has had a currency crisis, which has um, come to the fore once again fairly recently. But BP is taking a look at Egypt and saying, right, it's time to start exploring that part of the world looking for fossil fuels. If you are BP or Total Energies, and I'm sure you've seen Total going all over the African continent, including Mozambique, and if you are BP, Bruce, you are into the consumer markets, and Egypt is a large consumer market. It's got 100 plus million people. It's in the top three African economies. It's a frontier economy because it connects the Middle East to Africa, North Africa, and because it's part of Comesa as well, it's going to give them access into a whole lot of other markets. 
the East Coast in the Mediterranean area and because of the Middle Eastern link that I mentioned is very well positioned. Egypt is a fast-growing economy. Make no mistake, the currency crisis in emerging markets will always be an issue. But it doesn't stop the growth. It doesn't stop the potential. But most of all, Bruce, when I look at the, I remember the BRICS equation. But remember the, what BRICS The BRICS with the five additional countries, Ethiopia, Egypt, wherever, whichever market you are in, even with the saber rattling between Egypt and Ethiopia over the River Nile and the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, being in Egypt is a very good position, vantage spot to be in relative to the rest of the commercial market. And Egypt, Sudan, South Sudan, Ethiopia, all that is where Egypt will be going in. BP will be going in. They are going into exploration yet $1.5 billion, but they've invested tens of billions already over the past few decades. So it's not like it's virgin territory. They're just realizing that just as they might have thought Africa is done and over and done with, there are still so many potential areas of investment, including petroleum. We are talking just transition, but still there are fossil fuels that need to be explored. And even though the transition will eventually happen, they still want to exploit the fossil fuels that are there. Of course, they also have technology, green technologies, this BP, and when time comes, they'll be well positioned to take advantage of that transition as well. Um, I mean, if my memory serves, Victor Khomaswana, just remind me about this. There was a time where you were in the cement making business. Um, and <laughs> we, we know that um, um, the cement making business has, has got ebbs and flows. Certainly in Nigeria, the cement making yeah. business is enormous and it is dominated by the figure of Africa's richest man, Aliko Dangote. But Nigerians yeah. are actually getting nailed on the price of cement at the moment. What's happening in that market? Exactly. Just to give people an indication, and you're right, I used to sell investment in in cement, not necessarily. I never. I was hopeless <sighs> when it comes to the industrial side. But yes, yes, I took some cement companies into the continent. We couldn't get into Nigeria because at the time, it was in cement. The production of one of Nagota's factories, in just one of them, was greater than all of South Africa's cement manufacturers combined at that time. Now, the problem, the reason there is, the, the, the bag of 50 kilogram bag has gone to about 10,500 naira, and that's the equivalent of 120 rand, just for illustration. And it suddenly went up, Bruce, because of many reasons, but most of all, the government of Nigeria has been talking about building concrete highways. And you know what that means? Although they have a lot of capacity and they have tens of millions of houses in backlog, I think 50 million backlog houses that they need to build, at least more than 30 million houses they have to build as a backlog. Even though they are all cement companies, not just Dangote, there's another one called Abua Group, which produces cement. Because of the government saying we want to build concrete highways, that demand has suddenly moved. There was already a shortage of capacity, but now that government is saying we're going to buy more cement to build highways I think the people who have the cement say let's make the most of it while we can it's just an equation demand and supply as I look at it they are aware that the demand is going to be much higher it will maybe help them in the short term of course but if they want the economy to grow the unions are getting in and saying you have to intervene as the government we can't be growing the economy when cement the basic ingredient of construction and all infrastructure is so expensive but for now yes it's been an exponential growth to just over 20 rent 50 kilogram back.
Um, the economy in Nigeria um, it, it, it ebbs and flows, of course. Um, yeah. And I, I'm wondering what the status is in that country, broadly speaking, in, yeah. I don't know, in 60 seconds. Inflation, inflation is at the 20-year high. The currency, hard currency, is in short supply. You might remember the Emirates Airlines and lots of other airlines being unable to repatriate earnings, let alone repatriate earnings, just being unable to collect on those people who owe the money. Their debtors are not able to pay because they can't raise the forex. And of course, you still have the Boko Haram situation, although it's dire as it is. But at, at, the, at the center of it, to remember, two weeks ago, Gotes refinery started producing oil. So in the midst of all this crisis, Nigeria is in a big crisis. There is that opportunity. Dangote launched the largest refinery in the southern hemisphere with the latest technology. And you are going to see Nigeria cutting all those fuel pump queues that have made it a nightmare to drive in that city. So it is exactly the best and the worst of times in Nigeria. But for people like Dangote who are investing, it's the best time to invest. Victor Khomaswana, thank you very much, Victor. Our Africa Business Report, uh, of course, on The Money Show, the Africa Business Report. The Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. And Warren is a certified financial planner. He is a director at Galileo Capital. He's a financial advisor. And he joins us regularly on a Tuesday evening. Warren, I'm noticing something, and they are almost as bad as those old 419 scams from more than 20 years ago when princes from Nigeria generally and, I don't know, all sorts of other mysterious places would send emails to say you've inherited a million rand. Come and give me your bank account details and give me your passwords and you can have the money. And I'm noticing the number of investment scams that I'm getting, mostly the work of amateurs still, um, are rising once again. And maybe they're just getting through the firewall. I don't know. But certainly scams are nothing new, but they are certainly prolific determined and consistent in efforts to get you to fall there such as traps absolutely bruce and and the the they are they are generally as you say quite amateur in, in nature but so, some of you them are, are pretty sophisticated because i am assured that warren is there and i'm just not hearing him uh he's here there he is. Of course you are. I knew that. I didn't think for a moment that you'd abandoned me. <laughs> so uh, looking so at these scams, we, uh, I feel um, they're kind of kind of divided into two groups. The real amateur hour, easy to decipher, easy to, to kind of you know see what's happening but but then you get the more insidious more uh, sophisticated scammers that that are are really good uh, you know at at uh, setting the scene for people who may be in a rush maybe not quite sort of on, on top of their game in terms of understanding the, the you know how banking systems work how investment uh, companies work uh, and and those scammers are 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 catching people all the time and i, I saw one today on social media of uh, a, a deep fake of of Johan Rupert supposedly being interviewed on a on a news channel and and you know, talking about his new trading uh, system that he's launched and it's you know highly sophisticated etc cetera, etc cetera. 
absolute garbage. But but uh, I mean, it, you know, if you didn't know that Johan Rupert didn't have a slightly British accent, I think you would have been you would have been caught by it. And uh, and 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 so these the scams are getting uh, um, you know some of them are certainly a bit more sophisticated. And I think as people get more and more desperate. Uh, you know, financially, they 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 tend to do a little bit less homework and and a bit more easy to be to be sold to. And and I thought you would say, as people get more desperate, they create more scams. But I, I don't think the scams are the work of desperate people. They're the work of devious, dastardly people who are trying to capitalize on the desperation of vulnerable people. Um, yes, and the the, the one is one. Um, I am named in a scam some. Uh, it's connected to standard suing Silvermosa or something. And some very smart people um, are coming to me and saying, is this true? Did you do this interview? And I said, do you really think that if I'd done an interview in which something as exciting and as catastrophically, you know, spectacular as this story seems to suggest, that you wouldn't have heard it? amplified elsewhere that you're relying on some sort of facebook ad or some nonsense please grow up um but really people are, it can be quite doff sometimes absolutely and and i i am um, so so i thought you know we should talk about this we should just you know other than saying to people which which is i guess it's obvious but difficult to do you know um exert some common sense and use common sense when when you're you know faced with something uh you know there are some some key principles that you can follow and and it, you know i i guess nothing's foolproof but but number one please start with being a little skeptical you know i think when when you get a a, a message whether it's by email or by WhatsApp, uh, asking for information, you know, uh, and and it could be, you know, someone purporting to be your bank, and and you know the the, the email could look entirely authentic, you, you know, the the, the the these are so sophisticated, Bruce, that uh, you know if they change the the character in a letter, and and instead of using English, use you know, uh, Russian, for example, for the A, and and you wouldn't be able to tell with your naked eye. It might look yeah. that uh, look like the email address is exactly right, and and it might come through a spam filter or something. So 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 you can't just rely on on an email address and think, well, you know, this is definitely coming from my bank. You, you will need to look at uh, what they're asking you, and and you know, I think the banks tell us ad nauseum every time you open an app, you know, it says there, you know, uh, you, you know, we're not uh, going to ask you for information online, etc. And yet, though, that's exactly what happens. People get emails, uh, supposedly from their bank, and and asking for, you know, confirmation of their their ID or their passwords, etc. Because you know, something, some system has changed, and their profile will be blocked or whatever it is. And and I think just number one. You should not uh, give any information to someone that phones you out of the blue. You know, if it is your bank uh, asking you for information, especially around passwords and ID numbers and those things, uh, put down the phone and uh, you know, you know, go to the the phone number that you know uh, that that belongs to your bank, and then call them and ask them what's happening. Most of the time, they'll tell you that it's absolute nonsense, and and you know, you, you can move on. So, so I think for for one around banking and and investment information, don't give out your 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 details to people uh, simply because they ask you. you. You need to you need to verify. Um, 
and and secondly, and I know it's a little bit of a pain, but uh, b- but using uh, what they call two-factor authentication uh, is really important. So, you know, just very simply, if you want to do a transaction on your on your banking website, and you you know you log in, and and then you get irritated because it asks you to go and open your banking app as well, just to confirm that that's the the case, that that's what's happening. Uh, just to understand that that second step uh, is is almost a kind of guarantee. That, that you don't get scammed and that you don't make a, 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 or payments don't get made uh, you know on your behalf that you know nothing about so so uh, you know if you if you haven't enabled this two factor authentication on your on your banking uh, because it's a pain uh, I, I suspect that trying to get money back that you've paid by in error to somebody or that it's just been taken out of your account is far more painful uh, and and so i think that that's important and you know if you're getting statements from your investment company and they don't have a password on that statement, you know, which often is just your ID number, but if they're just sending you plain statements with all of your financial information on, uh, I, I suggest you consider firing that investment company because that means they're not protecting your data. So, so I think be very careful with information that comes o- online and who you send it to. Uh, and I think just good practice is pick up the phone. You know, if someone phones you and says, we need to Absolutely. do a payment or... or just ask. Ask the question. Um, I, I was, you know, my, my wife got a phone call the, a, a while back now, and I, I spoke about it on the radio. Uh, but it was a, a really intense individual assuring her that her phone had been hacked and she needed to do a SIM swap and it was really urgent and she didn't do it. Her bank account was going to be accessed. And her first response was to put down the phone and go, oh, forget it. And then she started getting really worried. Uh, And then the phone rang again. It was the same person who clearly picked up something in her voice, an insecurity, whatever the case was, um, and kept badgering her, badgering her, badgering her. And she got was getting, and I was going to put the phone down. It's not real. Just put the phone down. And she wouldn't. So I removed it from her, which made me very popular. Um, and I then <laughs> shared some language, which if I did here, what I did there would have us. I certainly would be in a huge amount of trouble with the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. And surprisingly, the man did not phone back. And I, I then called Jackie O'Sullivan at, at, at MTN and said, is this normal? And she goes, yes, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do to stop it. But these scammers, they get access to some data and then all they need for you is to act on the confirmation and once you do the confirmation and you respond to an sms they're in your system and they are then duplicating your sim card and all hell breaks loose so there are so many clever schemes and scams very convincing individuals on the other side of the phone or on the other side of an email and guys are slick they're professional and they're terrifying uh, absolutely, and and you know, and we're not even talking about uh, you know people running just simple straight investment scams, you know, that, whether they be Ponzi schemes or the like, uh, and and I feel um, that the 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 market environment that we're in at the moment, where where uh, we, we've come through quite a few years now of, of really rocky markets, you know, markets shooting up and falling over again, and people really worried about their investments. The, the, the one thing that that a lot of people are looking for are, are, are very stable, very low risk investments. And and it's amazing how all of a sudden, you know, we're seeing what look like, you know, professional fact sheets of, of, uh, of funds or, or products or hedge funds or whatever it is, uh, you know, of, of, of investments that are delivering 
very consistent, very stable growth. And I'm not, I'm not talking about a bank account, but but a, but a fund, uh, and and delivering you know ten, eleven percent a year, whether it's in dollars or in rands, year after year after year, and and. You know, nothing can do that. Nothing can deliver double-digit growth as an investment uh, uh, year after year after year when when it's supposedly trying to beat inflation. I, I think understanding that, you know, investment growth always is 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 volatile. It's always rocky, and it and it comes in lumps. It doesn't just go very smoothly. The only thing that operates very smoothly is a bank account or a money market account or a unit trust that that invests in cash. Yeah. And and you know that that by no means is a scam. But but what we know is it's not delivering ten or eleven, twelve percent a year, especially not in 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 dollars. So I think that those uh, those investment scams at the moment, you know, also playing on people's need for stability and certainty and comfort and 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 they don't like the volatility and, and and my answer there is if you're seeing an investment like that that's you know someone's trying to sell you uh ask thousands of questions you know and 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 check it out because i i, I feel the likelihood is that either that investor who's running that fund is incredibly lucky or they're running a scam and then also just the personal hygiene factor as well in terms of your administration. And if you have been collecting documents for many years and some of us collect documents and forget about them and you go, I wonder why my cupboards are so full of files. And then you go back to them, you find, oh, look, bank statements from 1999. Look at that. Isn't that amazing? Then the, so much paper that you either try and burn it, but if you're in an urban area, people frown at burning paper, it's very smoky, um, or you then go, I could shred it, and you put a th- you know 20 pages through a shredder, and you go, well, that's boring, because domestic shredders aren't made for this sort of scale of shredding. You need to go to sort of the Enron's to the <laughs> scale shredders in order to get the stuff. And, and a lot of people just throw documents away because they go, well, it's old, it doesn't matter. But these things are treasure troves for the scamsters, aren't they? Absolutely, and I mean, I, I I had the the um I can't say pleasure, but I but I had the experience of of relocating a house recently, and and you know exactly that, you know, a whole lot of paper that that I was tempted just to you know put put into the recycling bin because I, I want to do my part and I'm, I want to be a good citizen of the world and. Uh, and and at the very last second, uh, I just thought, you know, we've got this tiny little shredder at home, and it's going to take five pages at a time. So uh, I, I know we're in an urban area, but but I did have a rather big bonfire to to burn all that stuff. And and the reason for doing that is, uh, you know, let, it's not the paper recyclers that are that are dodged, but you know, someone might be working in an operation like that that uh, you know builds up a profile of you and and starts building up a database of of little bits of information. Um, and as you said earlier, you know, as someone gets a little bit of your data and and gets a little bit more, uh, very soon they can build a fairly big, strong profile of who you are. And then, you know, if they do drop uh, drop you an email or a call or a WhatsApp uh, w- with an enormous amount of data about you, you might well be tempted to to kind of go along with whatever it is they're asking you for because you believe no one can know that much about you. So, so be very careful of of, of leaving things lying around that, that contain your ID numbers and bank account uh, d- details. Uh, you know, and 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 one big one I think that's that's kind of happening a lot is you know you might get an invoice. Someone says you need to pay for this, and and then you know I, I mean instinctively you, you know ask for an invoice, and and the problem is that invoice might be 
three digits different in the bank account number and you, you've sent the money off to someone else. So, you know, r- rather try and do online payments direct, you know, r- rather than an invoice if you can. Get them to take the money out of your account. A, a lot of institutions do that for investments now. But but I think we need to be a little bit more caref- careful now and not, you know, not so fixated on convenience if we don't want to be scammed. We just heard in Eyewitness News at Half Seven the uh, uh, the election date has been promulgated as the 29th of May, um, and a question from Mandla this evening. I'm worried about the elections causing uncertainty in the markets and affecting my investments. Should I make changes to my portfolio because of the elections this year and reassess next? That's a question from. I'm going to give you a moment to chew over that. The breaking news this evening, of course, is the promulgation of the election date, 29th of May. Mandla is already concerned about that. More with Warren in a moment. The Money Show. Personal finance with Warren Ingram. We've got two minutes for this answer, Warren. The election date, 29th of May. Mandla is worried and wants to change everything. Should he? Uh, short answer, no. Uh, the slightly longer answer is the the, the reason is that, that we markets tend to fear uncertainty much more than than certainty. So th- they will be really rocky and volatile leading up to the election. And once the results are known, uh, it, it very often happens that the markets actually recover a bit just on the basis of of getting a bit of certainty as to who's in power, what's going to happen, and even if the result isn't exactly what the what, what the markets wanted, they, 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 it does value the certainty. And, and and the other thing, Bruce, is you, you need to if you're going to invest according to an election outcome, you need to be able to predict who's who's going to win, how it's going to work out. You need to be able to predict how other investors are going to see that. And then how they've positioned their investments so that you can profit uh, or avoid losses. And that's far too many predictions about one event, which in this instance, in South Africa, this time around, I think is a hugely unpredictable event. So so I, I think don't uh, d- don't change things. Just make sure you're not uh, too overexposed to too many risky assets if it's not um, w- within your normal kind of financial plan. Uh, I got a note from one of the big international banks today just talking about the currency and volatility in the currency and basically saying, look, the election result is going to have very little short-term impact on the currency. What really matters is what's happening to the U.S. dollar. And let's not forget that. We kind of think that because we live in the bubble and the microcosm of everyday South Africa and we know when the rubbish isn't collected, when the pothole gets bigger, when you know all of the stuff happens that makes us think that things are falling apart, that in fact, actually, the rest of the world doesn't care. They've got their own problems. Um, their worst roads in many parts of the world, for example. Um, and actually, it's it's all about global macros. In other words, what's happening to global interest rates, what's happening to global inflation, that ultimately is more important in the short term than the, the minutiae of a country's politics, unless there's a catastrophic outcome, of course. But if, if you feel there's a catastrophic outcome, uh, then you, you know, th- that's a different issue altogether, I suppose. And and by by definition, those catastrophic outcomes usually come, uh, you know, arrive as an enormous surprise, uh, and and so yeah. I, I just think you know you can't you can't forecast that. And and last point is if you if you are feeling bleak about you know political leadership in South Africa, just look across the ocean and think, you know, things could be a lot worse. You could be facing the prospect of you know D- Donald Trump round two, and and, and that, that must be so depressing for for thinking Americans. Yeah. For both of them. Warning, I didn't say that.
That was just a, it was a thing. It was a, a, an obstacle. A, 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 yes, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Warren Ingram, Galileo Capital. He's a financial advisor, certified financial uh, planner, and a registered financial advisor. He is a director at Galileo Capital. Uh, wrapping up.